0: So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30
1: welcome back to another episode of the sweet spot this is john Sherman from practical golf and as always i'm joined by adam from AdamyandGolf.com. so have you been playing any real golf lately
0: uh yeah a little bit yeah well one round a week basically but i kind of injured my ribs the other day so i haven't played as much as i want to but yes it's going all right hitting the ball really well just not not scoring well at the moment it's all little playing decisions like little short game shots things like that and again Again, the simulator golf is kind of influencing that you know i'll have a 40 50 yard shot and i'm so used to playing it on simulator golf And when i go out in the real world it's it's a little different because the elevation is different out here as well the ball goes a little farther so you know I'm, i've missed kind of three greens last round from 50 50 yards which is kind of embarrassing but i'm dealing with new wedges i'm trying to make the the transition from sim golf to real golf, and just stupid little mistakes, really. But it's um, you know, I'm shooting probably around two under, uh, to three over the last few rounds I've been playing. So that's okay. But they could have been, they could have been that's, like
1: that's still pretty
0: good. They could have been like five under if if my game, if those stupid mistakes were away. But we all make them. But it's lack of playing.
1: Well, it's you're also you're also shaking off the cobwebs. We're going to talk about that in this episode, just comfort level on the golf course. And, you know, if you haven't been playing much lately, it's it's hard to expect not to have those little errors or sometimes big errors because it's kind of a reoccurring theme that I always say is like you, you need to be on the golf course to get better at golf. You know, as much as anyone can practice, it it can't simulate all the decisions and little things that happen out there. Um that just kind of instantaneously happen and you have to deal with them. Exactly.
0: It's it's re-highlighted to me the decision-making process and how important that is because, you know, going through my rounds, um, you know, and using my form of analysis I found that I'm not I'm not losing shots from bad shots you know there's no there's no miss strikes in there there's no fat shots okay I miss the miss the fairway occasionally but there's nothing disastrous there all all of the big errors or the drop shots have come from decision making for me and that's just you know lack of lack of putting myself in that situation because I've basically just been doing simulator golf for the last year during COVID what about yourself have you been you been playing much yeah
1: I uh I I don't think we discussed this since last time, but I, I put my hat in the ring again to try and qualify for the U.S. Mid-Am. I, I was close the last time I did it, and I got even closer this time. Unfortunately, I didn't make it, but um, this is, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now. But I shot a 74, and I think if 73 would have got me in a playoff for one of the alternate spots, and 72 would have, I think, gotten me in a playoff for like five spots. So it was close. It was close. It was one of those bittersweet rounds where it started off. I had three birdie putts from eight feet that I missed by like an inch to start off the round. Then I got on the bogey train. I uh, made the turn at three over, made a sloppy bogey on the 10th hole. I think I was four over. I'm kind of thinking of myself up, you know, sailing away. But as we discussed in all of our other episodes, I, I remained patient, stuck to my routine and got hot. I made a bunch of birdies. I was one over going into, I think the 16th hole and I almost did it. It was fun. Um, but you know, that's one of my, I don't know if i would call it a goal, but I, I just, I hope to qualify for that tournament one day. I think it'd be a lot of fun to get into a national event. What length of course is that? I think I have to look it up. I think it was probably like, I want to say like sixty seven hundred sixty eight something like that. I, I forget. Um, not short, not terribly long. We have a lot of classic golf courses in in where i live on long island so this was a it's called cherry valley so kind of a lynx style esque course it was windy and firm so a lot of times we have some courses around us that don't play very long but the way that they're designed um, still holds up and they're they're pretty challenging it, it was a pretty tough course but i, I played well I was, I was happy with the result the
0: reason why i was asking did you see the tweet from from lou the other day lou stagner who we hope to have on the podcast pretty soon by the way about the strokes gained and where scratch golfers tend to shoot par from or where their strokes gained are level to par. And I worked out that the average scratch handicap would probably need a course of about 5,800 yards if they wanted to average level par as a score.
1: Yeah, that that makes sense because most people get it wrong. Handicap is not your average. It's your potential as a golfer. So I think my average score, despite being a plus handicap, is probably – Two over par, maybe three over par, something in there. Mostly because I'm playing courses that are harder; their their ratings are higher than par, so I can shoot, you know, two over par, and that you know goes in as a negative differential. So we're going to get into a little bit of expectation management and scoring levels on this, but certainly the the you know, golf is a game of proximity, so a shorter course would certainly allow a better golfer to shoot lower scores on average, but not always. I, I still think. You know, like my course is only 6,400 yards, but it's it's not easy for many reasons. But that's a a separate topic. What are we talking about today?
0: We're talking about scoring barriers and how to break them, you know, breaking 90, 80, even 70 or 100. I'm sure there are a few hundred listeners. In fact, we should put that as first because, uh, you know, the average golfer apparently, what, what percentage of golfers wouldn't break 100 if they were to play the game to the tee, you know, rules being strict on them you know taking every out of bounds shot instead of a breakfast ball holding out every putt i think a lot fewer golfers would actually break 100 if if it was that strict in terms of their
1: yeah i think yeah absolutely i mean i think the the middle of the pack handicap is usually around 13 14 that's at least in, in the united states i think according to the usga so you know we can call that a high 80s shooter so that's kind of a a middle line so yeah i mean i think the topic of scoring milestones then this perhaps can get a little philosophical i think it's a double edged sword i think you know having goals and being proud of your scores and trying to break these Somewhat arbitrary milestones we've set up for ourselves. They are important. I wouldn't say that they're not important to me because they are. But at the same time, it could also create this uh, pressure and uh, mismanaged expectations if if you set goals that are kind of too lofty for yourself. And that's, that's something that I think a lot of golfers fall into that trap. So I think this should be an interesting discussion. I always get questions about this being like, oh, what does it take to break 100, 90, or 80? And of course, it's all relative. You know, someone, I I tweeted this out the other day. The great thing about golf is that, you know, someone shooting a 95 could experience the same satisfaction and joy as someone shooting a 65. Uh, it, It is all relative in this game. Yeah, hopefully we'll give some interesting thoughts uh, on all these scoring milestones, how to conquer them, how to not obsess about them at the same time, because I think that's a problem too. So, so where do we start this? Do we want to talk about like th- statistics and skill level for each for each scoring level, if we're talking about breaking 100, 90, 80, 70? Well, I think on the
0: topic of relativity, um, I think it's important to understand that everybody has their own things that they need to work on as well. I mean, we're all working on either improving our distance, max distance, uh, improving our direction control, or improving our distance control. Those are the three big things that are going to influence your score. You know, you might be working on trajectory as well, but usually trajectory is not going to be a massive influence on your score. You'd have to be on the real outlier end of the scale if trajectory is – is negatively impacting your score. You know, you'd have to be hitting it very, very high or very, very low and not being able to hold greens. So normally distance, distance control and direction. Those are the things we're working on. But, you know, there can be some other things in there that influence it, like your strategy or your your mental game. You know, you could be great on the range. You could hit hit it amazingly, but you get on the course and you can't You can't hold it together for whatever reason or you have one bad hole and then you completely collapse, as we talked about in our grit episode. Um, Or, you know, strategy wise, you could have a pretty decent shot dispersion circle, um, but you're just overlaying it in the wrong place. You know, you're taking on too aggressive lines and hitting it out of bounds more than you should. You know, there, there are plenty of times where I'll be on the course and be aiming at the right edge of the fairway or even sometimes in the rough if there's an intense amount of danger on one side and not on the other i don't think that amateurs take these things into account they just as we've talked about many times aim at the pin aim at the middle of the fairway and they don't take into account uh, bogey avoidance or double bogey avoidance
1: sure so why don't we start with i i thought it would be a good place to start with distance we had our episode with mark brody which if you haven't listened to go back it's our most popular episode he talks about how golfers separate themselves using his strokes gained analysis. And you know, he he has a great generic main thought about distance. It's that, you know, how far you hit the ball is kind of your like upper limit of your scoring potential, meaning the farther you hit it, the more potential you have to score lower in this game. And of course, there's all types of caveats to that, but when you look at aggregate statistics based on scoring levels in this game it holds up pretty well um you know I, i've looked through a number of data sources whether it's shotscope arcos which are tracking golfers on the course um i have some stats here from the distance insight report which was done by the usga and the rna a few years ago and for the most part you know recreational golfers are not hitting it all that far but you could see a clear trend i'll throw a few numbers at you this is from shot scope so the the average distance off the tee based on handicap so a 26 handicaps hitting at about 200 yards 20 handicap is 216 yards 14 handicap is 222 An eight handicap 242 and you know once you get down to two scratch level about 250 average off the tee as you would expect the farther someone can hit the ball in general um it's it's just easier for them to score lower again, not always true, but I think if people want to talk about well what can I do to become you know a ninety golfer an eighty golfer, certainly distance has to be part of the equation, yeah, and I, I would link that to swing
0: speed, so you know I, I give sometimes some numbers for what swing speed you'd need to hit or almost minimums, I would say, you know, if you want to break 90, you're probably looking at 85 mile an hour of driver club head speed, you know, and that's even if, if a lot of the factors are optimized, like launch angle, spin rate, smash factor, things like that. If you swing at 85 mile an hour, you're really inefficient with how that club is transferring energy to the ball, then it's, it's not going to be worth it. But I, I rarely see someone who breaks 90, who's, who's much lower than 85 mile an hour, If you're looking to break 80, we're looking about 95-mile-an-hour club speed, something like that. And if you're looking to break 70, I don't see many guys below 105-mile-an-hour. I I would be one of those guys who's on – I'm on that edge of 105-mile-an-hour, really slow swing speed player. But I optimize everything with my distance, you know, launch angle, ball spin – Uh, ball speed things like that so i get the most
1: juice out of the very pathetic speed that i have it's such a touchy topic to talk about you know swing speed and distance like whenever i mention it on twitter eventually someone's going to be like oh well you know all the game now is about hitting it as far as you can and that's i i believe kind of a cop-out i mean you can make that argument for tour level players certainly they're hitting the ball mind-boggling levels but when you look at recreational golfers they're not i just told you that the average distance for for most golfers off the tee with a driver is in the low 200 yard range so i would say that if you are someone looking to break these scoring milestones and again we've discussed this with mike carroll go back to that episode with fit for golf we've talked about it with our optimizing driver distance uh, episode. certainly go back to that This is about adding modest speed and distance to your gain. If you can go from hitting it 215 to 235, that is going to increase your scoring potential. Of course, you want to keep it in play, not spraying the ball all over the place. But there's some very reasonable things you could do fitness-wise, improving your launch conditions, working with a product like Super Speed Golf, which is an overspeed trainer. Um, so you can go back into our library. I don't want to make this episode about that, but um, I think you know distance, the, the, the more I understand the stats and of course watch golfers over the year, it is important, but you don't have to obsess over it and 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 start working at it like like Bryson does. I know we always mention him, but um, you know reasonable steps to to hit the ball a little bit further. Even last episode we spoke with Woody Lash on getting the the right driver in your hands could increase your distance. So that that's my main thought is like it, it is important and it can lower your scores dramatically.
0: Yeah, there are many players who I look at their game and they say, well, "How am I going to get better?" I look at how they're hitting it I look at their distance control and I say well your strike is good your direction is as good as kind of humanly possible for the amount of time you practice it's gonna be distance unfortunately you get you're, you're limited by how far you hit it you're playing off say you know I had a guy the other day who's like shooting around about zero to five over and he's hitting about 220 yards I say you're just that's amazing that you can do that. You know, all other other parts of your game must be really optimized because hitting it 220 and shooting level par is a tough job. There are many par fours that you can't get on into. So, you know, we we just w- explained how to launch the ball higher. We went through some of the technical things. We picked up about 10, 15 yards through just ball flight optimization. Um, and then it was... Just after that, it's, you you got to crank it out there. You got to produce more speed. So do the super speed training, and uh, I hooked him up with Mike Carroll as well for the fitness stuff. So we'll see the benefits, the fruits of that later on. But yeah, for many players, it's just a limiting factor, right? You're not going to shoot scratch if you're hitting at 180.
1: Exactly, and there and there's other ways to do it. Uh, we'll, we'll get into some other parts of the game, but for for me, that 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 has worked out. You know pretty well. Um, I haven't done anything crazy to get more distance. I worked out a bit. I did the super speed thing. I, I talked about my longer driver. Um, it's it's really brought me to another level of golf by adding 20 yards off the tee. Um, so that's one way to do it. When we look at other parts of the game in the context of what's the difference between someone who shoots a 98 versus an 88 or a 78, We've talked a lot about the approach play, uh, certainly greens and regulation. There's a huge jump in the amount of greens and regulation uh, based on handicap level. Um, the higher the handicap, the less greens are hitting in regulation. You mentioned this earlier, you talked about distance control. That, that's one of your your big kind of cornerstones of scoring milestones. So do you want to elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, distance control is two main technical factors. So there's
0: the ground contact And there's the face contact. Obviously, you could say speed controls distance as well. But with a seven iron, most people aren't missing greens because they suddenly swing five mile an hour lower. That's not the reason why they miss a green short or they, you know, their swing speed jumps up the same amount. They miss greens because they either fat it, thin it, or they have a poor face contact, toe or heel. Um the, the mental parts of that are obviously poor strategy, poor club selection as well. So we've done a whole episode on, you know, trying to overlay your shot pattern better and your approach play. Um, but yeah, in terms of ground contact, you know, players who break 90, and these are real general rules, but using the kind of divot board as, um, you know, I can always collect data on players and guys who are looking to break 90. Normally they hit up to an inch in front of the ball and up to four inches behind, so a kind of five-inch window there, 90% of the time they can hit that. They still fall outside of that range occasionally, and usually it's on the back end, so they're hitting five inches behind or more. That doesn't necessarily mean they're doing that on the golf course because the ball is teed up on a, on a little cushion of grass, but that's what I see on the divot boards. If you get the divot board, those are good goals to try and get within. You know, I often place a little strip on the side of the divot board to show them the five-inch area and say, let's do a ten-ball test, see if You can hit that area nine times out of 10. If you're looking to break 80, um, that drops down to up to an inch in front to two inches behind ground contact. Again, 90% of the time uh, players can get within that range. They still fall outside of that range occasionally. And if you want to break 70, then those players tend to hit up to an inch in front on their thin contacts and up to one inch behind 90% of the time, so there's a kind of two-inch window there that they're hitting. So, uh, again, 90% of the time. So, it's there's not a a huge amount of difference between 80 and 70. It's a a one-inch window uh, or a one-inch difference in ground contact. So you know lots of people are looking for these huge things or this magic in their swing you know what magic position are the pros doing that is going to help me achieve these better scores in reality is it's probably just refining the small things like your ground contact i think people don't pay enough attention to that
1: yeah i think we keep going back to the basic impact fundamentals whether it's where you're striking the ball on the face uh, where you're striking it on the ground where that club face is pointing at impact, the relationship with your club path and your club face. And I totally agree with you, which should be shocking to everyone, is that I used to think, you know, what what was it going to take for me to be someone who kind of was, you know, maybe stuck shooting in the low 80s and high 70s? What was it going to take for me to get to scratch one day? And I was assuming that it would be all these like miraculous shots that were leading to birdies. And... After watching some players and then going through the process of myself, it's more of like a tightening. I, I, like, I love using the word dispersion all the time because it implies like not perfection. You know, there, there's always some type of spectrum. As you get more skilled in this game on those basic impact fundamentals, which really is determining where the golf ball is going, the window's just getting a little tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, like you said, you're not striking it so far behind the ball. Uh, or not chunking it as much on the course or thinning it Um, maybe you're controlling your club face a little bit better for me it was off the tee with my driver maybe my face would be pointed wide open I'd hit that huge block or it'd be too closed and I hit that huge pull now I, I have that miss still it's just a little bit better when we talk about breaking through different scoring levels I think it's important to note that it's not These massive changes that occur, it's more small refinements that kind of like stack up over time and you're never going to get to perfection because that's just golf. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> oh, of
0: course, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's always going to come down to ground contact, face contact, face direction, the impact laws, basically, in the big three. That's why every single episode, we're going to remind you guys of it. <laughs> it's, it's just going to be coming out your paws at the end of listening to our podcast. But that's, that's because anything you do in your swing has to influence those things. If you go and make a huge wholesale swing change and copy a new pro, you know, go from a Matt Wolf model to an Adam Scott model or whatever you want to do. You're only going to get better as as far as you're going to influence those impact factors, and so you know going going with the distance control thing, face contact as well. I have kind of boundaries for those. If you're going to try and break ninety, you've got to be hitting the grooved part of the face at least ninety percent of the time. You know, maybe even higher than than that because you know you go outside of that, you can get away with a few toe shots, but if you go on the off the groove side, the grooved part of the face. On the heel side, that's gonna be a shank. And you know, 90, 90 players, they're gonna throw them in occasionally, maybe one, two around. When you get to 80s, breaking 80, I look for um, at least 15 millimeters either side of the sweet spot, 90% of the time. So I don't like players falling outside of that range. So 30 millimeters is just over an inch, really. So you've got half an inch either side of the sweet spot that I'd want them to be hitting 90% of the time. And if you're looking to break 70, I would say you need seven millimeters, around about seven millimeters either side, 90% of the time. So that's quite a a tight strike and uh yeah if you're falling outside of that range i mean obviously modern clubs are very forgiving but i know from looking at gc quad when a player hits seven eight nine millimeters off off the center they're losing about 10 yards of of distance so you don't want to be doing that really and i
1: think that's why it's helpful to think of you know Mm -hmm. if we're talking about approach play which is the biggest contribution to scoring potential you know mark mark brody Got to prove that definitively, and it holds up in all of the statistical analysis. You see at every mm-hmm. level of golf. So with approach, prey, whether it's distance control, front to long, or directional control, left to right, you want to make that circle. You're always going to have a circle, meaning you're going to be, you're never hitting it to the exact spot. But if you can achieve all those things that Adam's talking about—better strike, better ground contact, better face control—the circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So when you look at Um, proximity data by handicap level, of course, a five handicap will have a tighter proximity to the hole with, let's say, a seven iron in their hand versus a 20 handicap. They're just better at controlling their impact conditions. And perhaps they're better at picking their targets. Their strategic uh, decisions might be a bit better. Um, But a lot of it is getting down to strike skill um, when you're talking about making that Circle small enough where, you know, you're leaving yourself on the green with an easy two putt for par, um, reducing the bogeys or double bogeys. Um, that's that's unfortunately what it's mostly about. Um, it, it is is removing those big oops error swings and making a lot of easier pars and bogeys and getting rid of those nasty scores that we don't like to talk about.
0: Yeah, it's all marginal gains, You know, face direction control. If we move on to the left to right dispersion part, we know that face direction is probably the biggest factor within that path and strike can be variables or path is a variable, strike can be a variable with the bigger headed clubs. But, um, you know, this really highlights it with face direction. What I tend to see on the quad with players who are shooting around about 90 or just on the verge of breaking 90, they tend to present the face within about an eight degree window. So maybe four degrees either side of their average. Um, With 80 shooters, this drops down to about a six degree window 90% of the time. Again, they throw some outliers in there, but 90% of the time they're within a six degree window, three degrees either side. And with 70 shooters, it's about a four degree window, 90% of the time. So the difference between breaking 90 and breaking 70 can be just four degrees of face presentation. And obviously this doesn't apply to everybody, but these are kind of the numbers that I see on a daily basis using the quad. And, uh, you know, it's just a lot of it is just physics as well. If you're hitting a certain window, you're going to get a a certain outcome dispersion. And uh, yeah, so just tightening that uh, tightening that window by four degrees can drop 20 shots. It's really ridiculous.
1: I think one of the – I don't want to beat this horse to death. Um, I think everyone kind of gets where we're going, that you know, the, the more you tighten up these impact skills through practice, uh, through being on the course more, the, the lower your scores are going to be. Um, but when we talk about stats, of course they don't hold up for individual golfers, even Mark Brody said that in our conversation. So I would say if you are looking at your game from a a scoring milestone perspective, if you're saying to yourself, oh, my average score is a 92, what do I have to do to get to an 85? I think now the more productive way to do it is doing the strokes gained analysis and then using some type of stat tracking device. If you want to be analytical about it and, 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 make sure you're putting in the right kind of work. Um, so you can get yourself, whether you use, uh, a, a, an app like golf metrics, um, you can get the shot scope system, which plug, plug, you can get a good deal on that from the practical golf deal section. Um, there's Arcos. there's, there's a few options, but I, I think it makes the most sense for someone to say, you know, track your game, see, where, you can, where you're gaining and losing strokes versus that milestone that you want to get to. So you might see that the reason you're not shooting in the mid-80s, maybe you are actually hitting the ball far enough with the driver. Perhaps it's eliminating bigger misses, or perhaps you're losing strokes around the green and you're just three-putting too much. The answers are different for each player. Um, I've spoken about statistics that hold up generically across scoring levels, but of course, we all are unique butterfly, uh, unique snowflakes and butterflies, whatever you want to call it in this game. Um, so I think the most efficient way to do it, and Adam, you can agree with me or not, um, for people who are analytical and want to get the most bang for their buck in terms of um, either practicing parts of the game where they need help or maybe making strategic adjustments – you kind of have to keep track of your game and then using strokes gained, you could see where you are deficient and then see if you can make some fixes there. I think that's the, the most efficient way to do it at this point in time.
0: Yeah, you want to keep track of the outcome stuff and, that, and strokes gained statistics can do that for you certainly. But I, I also want people to keep track of the process, you know, what they're doing to cause it. You know, if strokes gained tells you you're missing a lot of shots short, sure, that's great. Go got to figure on out it. why. Yeah, yeah exactly. Is it, are you picking the wrong club? Um, are you misjudging conditions all the time? You know, you're not judging the wind into your face. I mean, it'd be funny to play a course where the wind is constantly in your face, though. Um, it's more likely a club selection error. Or are you, is it a technical issue? You know, you're not, um, you're not contacting the ground correctly or hitting too many fat, fat, thin shots, or is it face contact issue? It can even be face control. You know, at my level, when I'm hitting long or short, if I miss a shot, shot long or short, it might be more that I have closed the face down. And then you get those long left shots or left the face a little open and you get those high right short shots. So you have to be kind of analytical enough to to view that and determine whether it was a strike issue or a face presentation issue.
1: Well, that's, that, that is the good thing about all these stat systems with their dashboards. If you do want to go this route, let's say if you figured out you were losing five strokes on approach shots to, you know, a 14 handicap and you're a 20 handicap. Um, you can then go into your shot dispersion and say, oh, I'm missing most of my greens short and left. Well, is that a strategic error? Is it a strike error? Is it a little bit of both? Um, usually trends start to appear and then you can make adjustments, whether you're getting some help with your swing, um, working with a teaching pro, maybe addressing some of that stuff in practice. Um, we always talk about spraying the face of your irons and seeing your impact location and what that can do for your skill um, or you know, we've talked a lot about strategic adjustments on the course. So you won't know until you take a look at these things and dive a little bit deeper rather than just being like, oh, I'm not playing as well as I should be. And then just kind of taking a shot in the dark uh, on what it is, because sometimes you'll see players start working on, they'll spend endless amounts of times working on parts of the game where they actually think they're deficient and they're really not. And they're kind of tapped out on that part of the game and they can't get much better. So they're kind of leaving these low-hanging fruit untouched. And that's where that that type of process can help is it can make you, uh, as I keep saying, more efficient in your approach. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward spot. That's LinkedIn.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Lynxwear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance. With a new fit and feel, you'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for, with their Wonder Luxe midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G's shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes yeah
0: I had a guy last night who was um spending it was an online lesson but he sent me all his stats and he was spending the vast majority of his time on putting and short game um and only a very small amount of time i think only twenty percent of his time was on full swing whereas most of his shots gained or i should say shots lost were on the long game you know approach shots hitting lots of shots short and right so you know i just flip flip that around for him changing his uh his practice but you know you have to kind of rate and look at players as, a, as an individual what we're doing here is giving generalized stats you know you could have two guys who are shooting 80s one of them is that you know 75 year old guy who's been playing for a million years and uh, he has the same old swing since he's been born basically and he, he punts it down there about 150 180 but it's straight as hell and I can look at that player and say well look your face control Based on the on the quad numbers here, your face directional control is equivalent to a seventy handicap, uh, a seventy shooter, but your distance is equivalent to a ninety. And at the same time, you can have a guy shooting eighties, so same scores, but his distance is equivalent to a pro, and his face control is the equivalent to a hundred shooter. So you're just working on different things. So it's you know, just because you shoot a certain score doesn't mean you'll be working on the same things as someone else.
1: Exactly, and I, I I see it all the time, even at at the higher level of golf, um, amongst like elite amateurs. You, you could see, like you said, golfers are. This is really the beauty of golf. We're alluding to here is that they're all arriving at the same score from different places, um, but that also means that there's opportunities if you can maintain your strengths. You know, kind of keep that skill intact, and then identify truly what the weaknesses are being very specific about it like you said is it a face control issue if you're hitting the ball very far but but losing strokes off the tee obviously you're you're spraying it all over the place so you need to work on face control um so you know when we talk about stats that that ultimately is my goal for everyone is that yes there are generic trends that hold up in this game but of course you have your own story and you have to figure that out on your own. We're kind of giving you some nuggets of information to then go do the work on your own.
0: Amateurs are often not working on the right things because they're not mentally connecting the outcome with what they should be working on. So an example of that is the guy that I'm playing with at the moment. He's off a higher handicap and he hits the ball as far as me, uh, even though we shoot about 20 shots different. And he was he was working on something the other day. I'm like, I'm, I'm just thinking that he's working on something that influences the swing path. Whereas this guy has, he's actually probably about as accurate as me in general, but his strike sucks. You know, he's fatting it, thinning it, shanking it, towing it. That's where all his shots are lost. And he's working on something that doesn't relate to that at all. You know, the swing path is not relating to those things, at least in his, in, in what he was trying to do. So, um, yeah, you, you've got to you've got to figure out what is it that I need with the outcome. What do I need to improve with the outcome? Is it distance, distance control, direction? Link that to the impact factor that you need to change: ground contact, face contact, face direction. And then, if you're going to work on your swing directly, work on something that relates to that that impact factor. Don't just pick something generic. Oh, I'm going to work on Dustin Johnson's wrist at the moment when you don't have any face direction issues and i see see so many amateurs just picking random things i suppose that's why a coach is so important to to guide them to the right things to work on
1: absolutely so let's shift gears here because there's a lot of different things or i'd like to shift gears if, if you're if we can we kind of talk about this stuff in every episode but i'd like to talk about like comfort level and what's going on in the course because i get a ton of questions on twitter and this is still a struggle for me as a golfer, we fixate on these scoring milestones. And it's kind of like a line in the sand of success or failure, unfortunately, for a lot of players. And the question I get over and over again is, well, do I think about my score when I'm playing? Like, how much should I be like focusing, like coming down the stretch? I know I have a chance to break 90 and then I fall apart. Because we fixate on the score and the milestone, we're often playing in a very results-oriented way, attaching to the score. And unfortunately, that gets in the way of a lot of the other things we've been talking about in other episodes, like your process, You know, doing the same thing over and over again, regardless of how well or poorly your round is going. We talked about pre-shot routines and post-shot routines, picking smart targets, stuff like that. So I think a lot of this gets down to expectation management, are you actually good enough to break 90? Should you expect that? Number two, comfort level. Have you been there enough on the course? Have you actually been out playing enough and putting yourself in that position? And number three, should you even be thinking about it or fixating on it? So, you know, there all three of those things kind of mix into this, like, comfort level of, like, you know, achieving these milestones. I just spoke a lot about that. But what are your thoughts on on? on uh, people's conundrums with like thinking about their score and fixating on it on the course.
0: Yeah, I remember Tony Robbins talking about, he called it the internal thermostat and he got it from someone else. Um, This idea that we have this, uh, you know, boundaries or these boundaries within ourselves where when something gets too cold, you know, things start going wrong. You could link this to weight loss or weight gain, for example. Say, Say you step on the scale and you're at your upper end, what do you do? You kick up the motivation. You're like, right, turn on the thermostat. I'm, I'm getting down. I'm, I'm going lower. I'm going to, you know, diet and exercise because you get that point of discomfort with being you're uncomfortable with being too high in your weight. But at the same end of the spectrum, we can self-sabotage or at the other end of the spectrum, we can self-sabotage when we get our weight low enough where it's like a new low. Our brain goes, ah, I've achieved something good here. Let's relax. Let's take the foot off the pedal a little bit. And then what happens? You spend a week binging and you go back up again. I'm there right now. I've been trying to lose 20 pounds for the last year or so. (laughs) I know exactly what I need to do it, but I've just been struggling with that internal thermostat. There's not enough motivation for me to go down. When I get low enough, I get too comfortable there. And you can link this obviously to your scores as well. There are plenty of times where people will experience it where they play in a bad round and it's and then they 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 find a new gear, they find a new level, and they get it back into their normal range. And it's obviously very difficult in golf because it's not like we can control that, right? It's not like we can say, right now I'm gonna play good. But but there is something that seems to happen in most people. Most people find that normal range again. And the other side when it comes to breaking. Scoring barriers. I know this all too well. When players get into that position where they're going to break a new barrier, a new personal best, make a new scoring milestone, what do they do? They screw up on the last few holes or at some point they're screwing up. And a lot of that can be down to what, you're, what you believe about yourself as a person. And, and have you been there before? You know, my own personal story of that was, you know, breaking par was very difficult for me as a junior, not because I couldn't, you know, I had all the technical skills to break par around the course. There were several times where I would be three, four, five under coming into the last three holes and just completely melt down. And I know the feeling whenever I got under par, I became protective of my score. And my brain went into the mode of, let's get in the clubhouse as quickly as possible to save this score. I'm, I'm in a good position. I want to get, it's, it's so illogical, but that's just, that's how it felt to me, is get in the clubhouse as quickly as possible. I stopped swinging aggressively. You know, my swing became more tentative, more steery. Someone asked the other day on Facebook, what, what's the difference between steering versus, uh, you know, swinging freely? Steering, steering for me is is a case of don't go this direction. You know, I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to go left. I don't want to go right there. Whereas swinging freely is more. This is where I want to go, and you swing towards that. So yeah, whenever whenever I got under par, my brain would get into that protective, steery, negative mindset. I'd even my brain would even seek out danger. You know, I would look at the hole, and my brain would see the danger on the left and the danger on the right. You know, there's some there's some studies on that in terms of, um, it's called inattentional blindness. Have you ever done the gorilla experiment? I have not. So look at this up on YouTube. The gorilla experiment, it's basically, you've got a team in black and you've got a team in white and they're bouncing a basketball around, and the team is passing to their partners, and you have to count how many times the team in white passed the ball. So your brain is so focused on counting that what happens in the middle of this, it takes about a minute, in the middle of this, they say, or sorry, at the end of it, they say, "Did how many passes did the team make? And you say, 15. And they go, yes, the answer was 15. But did you see the dancing gorilla? And you're like, what? And they rewind the video, they rewind the video, and in the middle of it all, a guy in a gorilla suit comes on doing break dancing. And so this is an exercise in what's called inattentional blindness. When we focus so intently on something, we actually lose information about other irrelevant stimulus. So our brains are so focused on on uh, counting the passes that we don't see the gorilla. Our eyes see it. Our brains are being fed or our eyes are being fed the photons, but our brain is filtering out the information. And so this is why what we talked about last time about routines is so important, because when we get involved in what do we want to do, our brains filter in more information with that. And on the other end of the spectrum, when we get frightened, when we get in a position where we feel we don't deserve to be and we get scared and anxious, then our brains start to seek out more information relevant to danger. It's a survival mechanism. If you feel frightened, your brain is going to want to look out for tigers and it's going to want to have a heightened sense of awareness for tigers and lions. It's what allowed us to evolve. Um, and so this goes against us when we're playing golf. We feel the nerves, our brain triggers adrenaline and uh, whatever triggers adrenaline, our body does. And then our brain seeks out more information relative to danger. And then it influences our motor patterns. So that's a long diatribe there to to explain the processes behind this. But um, you know, we have to get to the crux of the problem then. You say, well, what is causing us to get nervous in the first place? And the answer to that is a belief that you shouldn't be there belief that you shouldn't be in the, in that scoring barrier
1: i think a lot of it you know when i think about what i've been through whether it's being a golfer who is trying to break 80 that used to be a big deal for me and i would do all the things you talk about i'd be like you know five or six over par on the 16th hole all of a sudden i'd start getting nervous and sweating my hands would be shaking i, I knew exactly where i stood relative to par i'd be like oh i gotta shoot this 78 and then i would just you know Ruin things coming into the clubhouse. And I think that, you know, you have, I keep saying this over and over again that there has to be a certain comfort level with playing golf. Is that I think for if we are talking in the context of achieving these different scoring milestones, I think first of all, you have to be good enough to put yourself in the situation. So, you know, if if I was saying to myself, oh, I want to break 80. Well, I have to be good enough to be five or six over par on the sixteenth hole in the first place. That's step one. So that that's kind of an expectation management. You know, being honest with your skill level. That's step one. Step two would be to put myself in that situation enough and start understanding what happens. I'm getting nervous. This is uncomfortable territory for me. I'm failing, um, and having that happen. And eventually, if your skill level is up up to par, no pun intended. Um, You are going to start shooting a few of those scores where you break through and then you're like, oh, well, maybe I can do this sometimes, certainly not all the time. So you're kind of climbing this ladder of experience and comfort level so that the next time you're in it, it doesn't seem as foreign to you and you're not that uncomfortable. So if I'm thinking about or even in tournaments, the times where like I had a chance to like get into big events and then kind of lost my nerve and got – really uncomfortable. Um, It's because I hadn't been through that process before. And all of a sudden, my mind started wandering to places that were not productive to the task at hand, which is what you mentioned in in that kind of gorilla experiment. I I was thinking about the gorilla jumping around, probably all the bad things that could happen. Um, And then as you put yourself in that situation, I, I believe the goal is to get more comfortable with it. And then you could focus on your process more versus worrying about the result because you've seen it and felt it before. I think comfort is is a huge part of it and skill level, to be honest. Like you also have to be good enough to get there. I, I'd even
0: go more extreme than you. You said having the potential to shoot that, uh, you know, having the skill to shoot that. I'd say you probably have to have the skill to shoot at least five under what, what barrier you're trying to break. Five yeah, to even possibly. 10 under.
1: You know, I, I have the potential. It's a bit of a chicken or the egg
0: argument, I would say. So I, you know, I, I know from experience I have the potential to shoot about eight under. That's been my kind of lowest um, 70, uh, par 72 score. Um, but if, if you, if your best golf is going to produce 80 or 79, and you're, you're trying to break 80, uh, you know, consistently. You're just, you're not good enough to do that. You, you can't play to your, you're asking to play to your ultimate potential consistently. And that's just not how it works. You know, you've got to, I, I can shoot anywhere from five under to five, at, five over going out tomorrow, even, even higher sometimes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's such a wide range that if you want to break a certain scoring barrier, you probably got to have the skill level to shoot at least five lower than that because there are going to be mistakes out on the course. And there are a few other things that I, I do as well. So on the in terms of feeling comfortable with uh, getting under par, there's some things you can do. You can go out and play off the red tees. If it's, uh, you know, if it's quiet on the course, and doesn't embarrass you to do that or whatever. You can go out and play on a much shorter course and just get comfortable with shooting a much lower score because your brain is then telling yourself, you know, I can I can do this. So when you start to go back in the tees, OK, it's longer, it's more difficult. But you at least have the belief now because you've seen it that you can shoot under parts just now on a longer course. That's all. And um The other thing you can do is play Texas Scramble as well with yourself. I don't know if that... I think it's called something different in America, but in the UK, it's the game where you go out, you hit two balls, and you pick the best one. Then you hit two shots from there, and you pick the best one. And then you hit two shots from there, and you pick the best one. I mean, you can even hit three shots if it's really quiet on the course. So basically, you're going to shoot a really low score doing that. And it's realistic in a way because it's you doing it. It's not someone else hitting the shots for you. It's you doing it. You're just selecting your best shots. So you have that potential within you. It's then a case of how do I access that more often, which can go into things like routines and visualization. But just seeing that, oh, I have the ability to do this and actually putting yourself in a situation where you've done that it helps a lot. And my anecdotal score story was in terms of breaking par or going low, I should say. And this is kind of a boast on my part. Is I've always struggled to be to hit quite low numbers. You know, I have a very strong internal thermostat. I get too deep, and my brain says, "Nope, you're going back up." You make a few mistakes, but one time I went out and I was playing with a bunch of amateurs. And they didn't have any clue. They knew I was a pro, but they didn't have any clue, you know, what a pro plays like. I ended up shooting eight under par for nine holes. Yes, that's right. Eight under par for nine holes. And I had a three putt in that. <laughs> they didn't care. And that's why I, sh- I, probably one of the biggest reasons why I shot that is because they weren't noting down. They were just like, oh, he's a pro. This is what they should do. Whereas inside I'm like, guys, are you seeing this? This is Freaking amazing,
1: <laughs> but um, nobody cares. That's always like one of the biggest things I tell people: is like the only one who really cares about your score is you. No one else could care less. Well,
0: yeah, that's one thing certainly, and the other thing was they were they were basically beginners, so they didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what was good or bad, and they just knew I was a pro, so they expected me to hit it to five foot every time. Um, but you know, after that round, I was just like, oh my god, I had such a belief system myself. or changed my belief system that. I can do that. I can go really deep. I mean, that was eight under after nine holes. Imagine what that could have been. And the very next round I shot, we went out and it got dark, but I shot six under for nine holes as well. And those two experiences just completely changed my belief system on going deep. So now if I get the five or six under, I don't panic, I don't freak out, and I don't try to protect it or get in the clubhouse earlier. My brain actually goes, let's see if I can take this lower. So uh, so much of that is just belief system. I'm not a better golfer skill-wise. It's purely a belief system that changed it for me.
1: Yeah, I think, um, and again, when Adam's talking about going five under, um, that could be the same as someone trying to shoot a 95. It feels the same. It, it, it's incredible how relative this game is. And I mentioned the chicken or the egg thing because I think for some people, it is a skill deficit. So, like, it's just not reasonable for someone to say, like, oh, I should be shooting the score when their skill isn't there. For other players, um, I'd put myself in that bucket too with you is that I would just get very uncomfortable when things were going well. <laughs> um, I, I guess I was so aware of my score. I, it, it's always like burned in the back of my head, um, that it would, it would genuinely make me uncomfortable. And then at some point I would break through to a lower level. It would happen a couple of times and then I'd go back to doing whatever I was doing, but at least I knew it was in there somewhere. And then it just kind of over time, if you keep putting yourself in those positions, paying attention to what happens, um, hopefully trying to make some mental adjustments. You know, I, I think pressure is so relative in this game too. It's no different for someone who's shooting a Saturday round or in a tournament, really trying to get your mind away from that scoring result and get it back towards can I make a smart target choice? Can I go through my process? Can I just accept the result, good or bad, and move on to the next shot? It sounds so basic, and I keep hammering this home over and over again because it's like truly a fundamental of the game to get past these things. I think that's the only way through you know, getting through these. If you are good enough and you do have the time to do it, That to me is kind of like the winning recipe is is, is getting yourself in the position, taking note of what happens and doing as much as you can to get off of the result oriented train and more into that like process train.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, the first time you break a scoring barrier, your mind is going to be on the score. Definitely. It's it's hard not to, but once you've done it, like you said, you can go back more to the process. You know, now when I'm under par, my brain is not, sometimes I'll be under par and I don't even know how many. I just know I'm playing well that day because I'm not counting it anymore. Whereas I know when it, when I was a junior, I would know exactly how much under par. And sometimes I'd be standing over a shot thinking, um, you know, oh, what if I get, I, I'd be so far ahead. I'd be thinking about the next two holes as I'm standing over a shot, which completely goes against what you should be thinking of over, over shots as, as a, according to our last um, of the podcast on routines that we talked about. So, yeah, I mean, the, you're breaking those barriers, like I said, playing off the red tees, playing Texas Scramble, at least so you get kind of comfortable with breaking those barriers mentally. You can even go through mental rounds of golf. I used to do it all the time where I, I'd play rounds of golf in my head and I'd try and shoot new low scores in, the, in my head, as stu- stupid as it sounds. It, it kind of helps with your belief system. And loads of greats in all sports have done a lot of visualization like that.
1: Well here's here's where I stand now on it, because I, I hopefully I don't contradict myself, but I have a much different view on scoring milestones now than I did twenty years ago, where it's like I don't really think about them anymore. In the sense that I, I sent out this tweet yesterday, it was pretty it was popular because I think it struck a chord with people. I said, do not tee off with the target score in mind. That's a mistake you know tee off with the commitment to having fun, making smart decisions and sticking with your routine and watch your scores drop. So again, this is easier said than done, but I don't I don't tee off thinking like oh I got to break par or I got to break 75. It, it, it's it's almost irrelevant to me and I'm not trying to be like some like Buddhist or nihilist or whatever you want to call me, but it is what it is. Like golf has all this like wide spectrum of results in terms of score. I, I can't go out there with, with a barometer of a scoring milestone because I don't want to consider the round of failure or a success based on if I cross some like imaginary threshold. And more importantly, the less I fixate on score, not that I don't know where I am relative to par, but the less I fixate on trying to hit a score, the better I play. It's so counterintuitive, but it's almost like you're letting go <laughs> um, to almost play better. that. Yeah, but that that's where I kind of stand now on the game is is like if someone tells me like, oh, I want to go break 85 today. I'm like, well, you just made a mistake right there. So, when, um,
0: when we pass your playing ability test, or I should say when you're trying to become a professional, a PGA professional, you have to do this playing ability test. So, you go out on a course and you play two rounds of golf. And you have a certain score that you have to shoot below. And it's it's silly high. It's fifteen over for two rounds.
1: Yeah, it was it it's usually like you have to shoot a seventy nine or eighty two rounds on like a on a not so difficult golf course. Usually it is from everyone I've known has gone a through. Seven
0: over and eight over, right? So you got a bunch of a bunch of guys below a four handicap, basically, or with a new handicap system, it'd be a like score. Bunch of guys off scratch trying to beat seventy-eight eight over and uh, seven over. So in theory, it's all really simple. Now I, one year, I had passed my playing ability test, so it was was no problem. But I was invited to go to a playing ability test because I had to make up a certain number of rounds. So basically, I was in a field of 20 guys, I think. Yeah, about 20 guys. And I was the only one in the field who didn't need to pass that. So I was just basically going out to play. Because I had to make up these rounds. Everybody else, all other nineteen people, were um, they had to pass the scoring barrier. Now, out of the twenty guys playing, I was the only one who would have sh- who, who scored the the um, who would have broken the barrier. I think maybe one other guy was with it. Almost eighteen out of twenty, I think, if I remember correctly, failed the playing ability test. Why the course wasn't difficult. Just the pressure. And that what you said, that they're so aware of their score when they're doing this. They're so aware of, oh, I've only got two shots left before I, you know, before I'm screwing up this playing ability test. So they're so aware of the score during that. Exactly. And they're playing so yep. protectively. They're not going out there to try and shoot a low score. They're trying to not shoot a high score. And so it, it There's so many people who have the ability to break, to play, beat this playing ability test that don't because of that mindset, because they're so obsessed with the score, because they're trying not to do something.
1: I think that if there's a way to summarize some of the key points discussed so far, I think off the course, it can be productive to use um, milestones as kind of like a fun goal. Or kind of a line in the sand to do some analysis, like we talked about, smart statistical analysis. And like Adam says, working backwards from results on the course and and then translating that to smart practice. Um, I think that's a productive way to approach the game in a way that's, you know, rewarding. And, and let's, you know, golf is a recreational pursuit and a lot of us uh, enjoy lowering our scores you don't have to play that way but if if you're listening to this podcast you likely do want to lower your scores um so i think it's a productive way to use these milestones off the course as a way to like self-organize in a smart analytical non-emotional way where i think it's a huge mistake is to use the milestones on the course for everything we just said in the last five minutes if you tee it up with that milestone in mind then you've just created this like arbitrary line in the sand. That literally means nothing. You know, uh, scoring ability is on a huge spectrum. Like Adam said, he can shoot anywhere between 500 to five over. Um, someone who's a 90 shooter can shoot an 84 to 106. So, you know, it, it, you know marking a line in the sand before you t- tee off, I, I think is a mistake. It, it's not going to allow you to ultimately break through these barriers if that's what you want to do and that's hard to do um so that's why like when i tee up now or even on a hole like if i'm playing a par five i don't tee up trying to make a birdie i tee up saying like okay i'm gonna pick a smart target off the tee go through my routine hit where'd the ball go okay what's my next target Go, pick a smart target. Go through my routine. Hit, and I just keep doing that. And then sometimes it ends up being a four. Sometimes it's a par. Sometimes it's a bogey. Hopefully not a double bogey. Um, but that—that's the biggest trick of this game is to assign the score beforehand. It's—it's—it's it, it's a really slippery slope and hard to avoid.
0: I don't really assign a score. You know, I c as I said, I've—I've I've got a mental range, but even that is a—is kind of unconscious in a way, but you know i i do have this kind of rule within my brain that says i'm probably going to make four or five birdies in a round if i just go through you know without trying to force it if i just go through doing my normal routine picking picking safe targets there will be probably about five birdie opportunities, a good birdie chances within that round. So the reason why I do that is because that helps me. If I make a a bogey early on, say just bogey the first, I'm not panicking. I'm not trying to force a birdie on the next few. I'm just, you know, I'm I'm of the understanding that they're probably going to birdie, be birdies happening later on. So that stops me forcing. I don't know if that counters your point, but in a way that complements it.
1: <laughs> no, that, that's, ex- I mean, that's that's what I went through in that last round I played trying to get in the mid-am. I, w- I was four over after 10 holes knowing that I had to be at even par or better probably to make it. And I just said to myself, you know, whatever happens, happens. I happened to make four birdies in the next five holes. And I'm like, oh, I'm in this thing again. And I didn't make it, but that's okay. It, like either way, I, I was genuinely okay with the result one way or the other i was just having fun it was a blast um and that's really what golf should be like you should enjoy this whole process because i used to play with the you know oh if you don't you know a long time ago i used to get i was not honest with my skill level and i said oh you better if you don't shoot in the 70s today's a failure and that's when i was the most unhappy and played the worst yeah, you know, I have kind of a list of points I want to make. And, and one of the final ones is just being honest with yourself. Do you have the ability to play enough, practice enough to reach a goal that you're going to set for yourself? If you are going to set like a scoring milestone for yourself, you better make sure it's a reasonable one and, and you can get there because that's also a huge mistake of saying like, oh, you know, I'm a 20 handicap. I want to get to scratch. I see a lot of people saying like road to scratch these Twitter accounts. And I'm like, not not to insult the chasing scratch guys, but as your handicap gets lower and lower numerically, it gets harder and harder to jump. You know, for, you know going from a five to a three is very hard versus going from a 20 to a 10, I, I'd say is not as hard. So you got to be honest with yourself. How much time you can commit to this process, and and your and your skill level.
0: Well, getting getting to a new scoring barrier versus uh, maintaining it is also different in terms of time. You know, it took me thousands of hours to get down to plus figures in in terms of my handicap, if I had one. But maintaining it is much easier. I can maintaining on on an hour a week of practice. I can maintain a plus figure handicap.
1: Yeah, and you always don't need to be chasing something lower. Like I'm just happy playing and competing and doing what I'm doing now. Like I don't have aspirations of getting to a plus four handicap. Like I just don't think I'm good enough. Maybe I am one day, but I don't worry about that. Or or someone who's a 15 handicap, like you don't need to be a 10 handicap to enjoy this game. You could stay a 15 handicap and have a much better time than someone who's a scratch player. So um, it, it is a, a two-sided coin.
0: <laughs> Enjoyment is relative, but um, I think the universal truth is we're all seeking a little bit of improvement or just just to see that we're heading in the right direction.
1: That's all. Of course, yes. And I think we're, you know, based on the responses I'm getting to a lot of these episodes, I, th- I think we're giving people these kernels of ideas to, to shave those strokes off their rounds. Because I do think... For most players, it's possible. Another final point I want to make is that no matter what scoring level you're looking to achieve, it is not about making, you know, better shots, birdies, chasing the pin, all those, you know, shots we, we wish we can hit all the time. It's more about double bogey avoidance and bogey avoidance. That is the difference between every handicap level. They're Better golfers are just making less mistakes versus hitting these tremendously incredible shots. Um, that's not how this game works. And I've said that before and I'll keep saying it again because it's. I need to be reminded of it myself. Paradoxically, that's why I said, uh, you know, understanding that there are going to
0: be birdies out there for me. Even if I play a safe strategy, means I don't go chasing
1: them. Yeah. And even uh, yeah, when I start yeah.
0: chasing them, I'm going to take on more aggressive lines, aggressive uh, targets towards pins. And that's actually where you don't make more birdies, but you do make more bogeys. Well,
1: and, and for 99% of golfers, I mean, a scratch golfer averages somewhere between one to two birdies around. And then when you get outside of that level, it goes well below one. Um, but you know, double bogeys, uh, uh, 20 handicaps averaging like six double bogeys around versus, you know, uh, five handicaps, probably only one or two, I think it is. So, um, the difference is not birdies. I was under that impression for a long time. Um, it's, you know, it, it's mostly about reducing those mistakes and a, a lot of that has to do with what we talk about on the show. Those will reduce those double bogeys. Um, many of the things we discuss. Um, so we covered a lot. Um, I hope we Gave people some good perspective on scoring milestones in general, how you can organize yourself to achieve them, but at the same time not obsess over them, especially when you play. That's kind of two main points that I wanted to make and hopefully we did. What are your closing thoughts? If, if, If we're at the end here, it seems like we are.
0: Yeah, golf. Outcome-wise, you're going to be looking at distance, distance control or direction. And then you have to look at the influences on those, whether they're impact factors or the mental or strategic factors. So that's how I'm analyzing a player. And I'm saying, well, I'm rating a player for each, each of those based on what I think they are. They might be a 90 shooter for distance but a 70 shooter for accuracy and so that guides us into what we need to improve or they might have the game of a 70 shooter but the brain of a of a 90 shooter and so again we have to go a different route with that player yep
1: there's all different roads (laughs) you can take to the same path which is what's awesome about golf whether it's a mental approach strategic sharpening up your skill whether it's ground contact face contact improving swing speed. There's so many ways to achieve these scoring milestones. So have fun with it. Be honest with yourself. Try and be analytical about what it's going to take to get there. And as hard as it is to do, don't place as much pressure on yourself while you're playing to achieve these scoring milestones. The less you try, <laughs> the better you'll likely do. So that that's kind of my closing easier said than done statements. Cool. Where can people find you, John? You can find me at practical golf.com. You can get some of the products we mentioned on, on this episode. Check out our deals section, whether it's Shot Scope or Super Speed. I mean, where can they find you, Adam? And you've got some great programs to help them with all these strike fundamentals.
0: Yeah, exactly. If, you're, if distance control is your issue, then the strike plan would be the best for that if directional control is the biggest issue then the accuracy plan would be best for that and if you just want something that's more all-encompassing you can't get enough of me you weird person then you can go to next level golf that's my ultimate program so they're all available on adamyounggolf.com
1: okay thanks everyone for listening and we will see you next week with a new episode